0: The world respects and honors famous people who are generous and charitable with their time and money. According to an article done by USA Today, the total given to charity by the top 50 givers in the United States in 2013 was $7.7 billion. According to Forbes, the top charitable giver in 2013 from this group of 50 was Bill and Melinda Gates, who gave $2.65 billion. Now it's estimated that since 2000, the Gates have donated some 30 billion dollars to charity. Now that's that's a lot of money, beyond what a normal person like you and I could ever dream of giving to help people. Now, how does that p- compare to the cross of Christ? How does that generosity compare to the cross of Christ? To us, it seems like wow, that's I mean that's nothing, you know, compared to me. But how does that compare to the cross of Christ? As we're going to see tonight, no amount of money, time, or good works will ever compare to what Christ did for us when he laid down his life on the cross for our sins. As we approach the cross of Christ tonight, from our second angle, we're going to focus on three points. Number one, man's need of a sacrifice. Number two, God's final sacrifice. And number three, our application in light of Christ's sacrifice. And so first of all, let's look at man's need of a sacrifice. Man's need for a sacrifice is seen two ways in the Old Testament. The first way we saw last week, we saw that because of Adam and Eve's sin, all people are born with an inherited sin nature. We also have that thing called imputed sin where because we all sinned in Adam, as Paul says in Romans 5:12, sin has been deposited to our accounts. And so there is none righteous, no, not one. Second, in the Old Testament, we see that right after the fall of man, animal sacrifice was instituted immediately and continued on until the coming of Christ, who was the final sacrifice. Here's some examples from the Old Testament that show the importance of sacrifice. Adam and Eve, as I said, right after the fall, when Adam and Eve were still in the garden, God demonstrated how a sinner was to restore fellowship with him. Genesis 3.21 says, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. So Adam and Eve, by their own effort, couldn't restore this fellowship with God. They were there in nakedness. You know, they tried to get fig leaves and cover up their nakedness and their shame, but it wasn't, you know, God didn't allow that. But rather, God came to them in his grace, and he shed blood, an an innocent animal, as their substitute. And then he clothed Adam and Eve so they can be restored in fellowship with him. Cain and Abel. The story of Cain and Abel shows us that it was probably a lamb that God sacrificed for Adam and Eve. We know that because when Abel brought a lamb to God, he commended him for bringing that lamb. But Cain didn't bring a lamb, as God instructed. Rather, he brought the fruit of the ground, his, the works of his hands. And God says, I'm not going to respect that. And Cain got mad about it. And what did God say in Genesis 4:7? He told him, Cain, if you do well, will you also be accepted? Do well means to repent of his anger. Into to bring an offering like God revealed. Abraham shows us that he was into sacrifice. Later, the patriarchs, such as Abraham, understood that God was to be worshiped through sacrifices, such as burnt offerings. Also, in Genesis 15, 9 through 10, we're told that when God made his unconditional covenant with Abraham, he told Abraham to bring some sacrifices. And God you know, had him sacrifice his animals, and they, there they established a covenant. The Passover shows us the importance of sacrifice. You see, before Israel left Egypt, because of Pharaoh's resistance, God said that he was going to bring a 10th and final plague on the nation. And that 10th and final plague was going to be the the death of the firstborn in every house. And so this is what God said. He told the Jews, hey, you can be spared from this plague, but I want each person, a, a household, to grab a lamb and sacrifice that lamb and put the blood on the doorposts. And as this plague comes through, your children will be spared. And they did just that, and they were spared because of the sacrifice in the faith that God, um, you know, the sacrifice you know, of this animal and their faith in that sacrifice. Also, we see in the law, we see sacrifice. Now, the greatest revelation that God gave to man concerning sacrifices is in the law, and that's from Exodus 20 until the end of the book of Deuteronomy. God in Leviticus, uh, Leviticus 1 through 8 commanded and instructed Israel to offer various animal sacrifices. They would offer the burnt offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the trespass offering. Also, they were to have a specific day of atonement. It's described in Leviticus 16. God commanded them that once a year, they were to bring a bull and a goat, and they were to sacrifice these for the sins of the priest, the purification of the, temp- uh, of the tabernacle and the articles and the articles and the furniture also for the sins of all who believed in the God of Israel. Now, why did God command them to sacrifice animals? Well, we see this purpose in three passages. Leviticus 17, 11, Hebrews 9, 22, and Hebrews 10, 1 through 4. Leviticus 17, uh, verse 11 says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Then Hebrews 9.22 says, according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. So it's clear from these passages that God established that a person's sins would be atoned through the shed blood of an animal sacrifice. Now, why the talk about blood? Why shed blood? Well, God required shed blood because, notice, the life is in the blood. Or in other words, the sacrifice was to to be a life for a life. That's why God had him shed blood, because the life is in the blood. And God said, I require a life for a life. Now, the key to understanding how these sacrifices atoned for the believers' sins in the Old Testament is given in the word atonement. I'm told in Hebrew, it means to cover. So these sacrifices covered the Old Testament believers' sins so God could pass over them so they could continue in a relationship with him. These sacrifices would cover their sins, so if they sinned, they would be restored in a relationship with God. This is where we come to Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 4. Notice what the writer of Hebrews says in in the New Testament. He says, for the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. For then would uh, they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshippers once purified would have no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of the sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. And so the sacrifices in the Old Testament atoned for sins, yes. But they were not God's final solution to remove sins. The blood of bulls and goats can never finally remove sin. They can never finally remove guilt but it left the believer with the reminder of the fact that they still had sins every year with every sacrifice. Think about that. I mean, I can't imagine having to sacrifice an animal. I mean, I can't. You know, then, you know they're, they're bringing this animal and they watch this animal die. And then with that, they're still left with the guilt and the reminder of the fact that they still have sin. Year after year, day after day. Not only do these sacrifices remind them of the fact that they still had sin but it reminded them of their need of a final savior. Notice verse 1 of Hebrews 10. It says that these sacrifices were a shadow of the good things to come, but not the very image. So in other words, these things prophetically pointed forward to the final sacrifice to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who would take away the sins of the world. Now, a quick side note here. God has always saved people by faith throughout the Bible. People were saved by faith in the Old Testament. People were saved by faith in the New Testament. That's what Paul talks about in Romans 4. Now, the basis of salvation in both the Old and New Testament from God's perspective has always been the cross of Christ. The Old Testament believer looked forward to the coming of the Messiah in faith. And us in the New Testament, we look back to the death and resurrection of Christ and we're saved by faith. And so the condition has always been Christ, or the basis has always been Christ. The condition has always been faith, but the content in each dispensation has changed from time to time. And today, we have the gospel of grace. But now, often when people talk about these Old Testament believers and sacrifice, they often say, well, yeah, they understood the cross and everything. Well, we can't go that far, because notice verse 2. We can't assume that, because notice the writer says that if they would have had this understanding, they wouldn't have had to continue to sacrifice because they would have had a knowledge of the fact that they would have had the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so, yes, these things pointed towards Jesus, but we can't say that they had an understanding like we do as we look at the cross today. And so these sacrifices, yes, was a, you know, was a prophetic picture and a reminder, but, but today we have the reality as we look at the cross. And so the daily nearly sacrifices left them with the reality of their sins in longing for a Savior. That brings us to our second point, Christ, God's final sacrifice. After the writer of Hebrews establishes that no Old Testament sacrifice could ever fully take away sin, he now points to God's solution, what they're all pointing to, Jesus, who is God's once for all sacrifice. Look at verses five through seven of Hebrews 10. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you do not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I've come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. And so the sacrifices and offerings that the writer is talking about here were those things that God gave man in Leviticus 1 through 8. How man was to approach God. God said, If you're going to approach me, a holy God, you need to approach me this way. It, it, it deals with death, with sacrifice. Now, notice the writer says that God had no desire in these things. He had no pleasure in them. And so that, you know, God was in heaven going, ah, you know, kind of thing. He had no pleasure in these things. He had no pleasure in the ritual offerings. This was not God's final solution, but rather they were a temporary means by which man can seek him because God wanted a relationship with man. And these things could never fully satisfy God because the wages of man's sin is death. You see, man must die for man's sins. So yes, God uh, temporarily in his grace allowed man's sins to be covered so he can pass over them. But this never changed the fact that man still had sin, that the wages of sin was death. Now, I love verse 7. While man's sins were being covered, God was still at work. God was still at work. Notice, Jesus came in the volume of the book is written of him. This means that the whole Bible is about Jesus from Genesis to Revelation. The Bible is God's redemptive plan to bring Jesus into the world. Think about it. Genesis 1 and 2 shows us man in a perfect relationship with God in the garden. Revelation 21 and 22 shows us man in a perfect relationship with God in a garden-like city with the tree of life there, fully restored and and perfect. Then we have Genesis three through Revelation chapter 20, it's all God's plan to restore man, to save man. And at the center of that plan is the cross of Jesus Christ. At the center of that mission of God bringing Christ in the world would be the cross of Jesus Christ. Verse 8, previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings, and the offerings for sin, you do not have desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I've come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will, we have been sanctified to the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And so God instituted animal sacrifice for a time. He instituted it for a time until what Paul calls in Galatians 4.4, 4, the fullness of time. And at that fullness of time, the time that God determined the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, came to this earth and through the virgin birth became a man. He lived this life submitted to the Father's will, just like the writer says here. Now, I love that the first words of Jesus recorded in the Gospels was when he was 12 years of age. We're told there that as his family was coming back from uh, the Passover, he, he kind of lingered behind, hanging out in the temple, talking with the, you know, the, the Pharisees and the, and the scribes. And they were looking for him, and they found him. And they says, we're looking for you. And he says, do you not know I must be about my Father's business? Now, some scholars say that Jewish boys picked their occupation at this age. Even so, Jesus knew his occupation. Jesus knew that his calling was to submit to the Father's will to be the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. Jesus lived to die. That's what his occupation was. It was to be the Messiah, to offer the kingdom to Israel, but knowing for a fact that it would end in the cross. Jesus ended his three-and-a-half-year ministry by choosing the Father's will. We talked about that two weeks ago in our study on Sunday. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane knew that he must drink the cup of God's wrath for the sins of the world. Jesus knew that he must go to the cross and shed his blood to establish the new covenant and take away sins. Not cover them, but take them away. And that's why John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus come on the scene, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Think about how that would have sounded to the Jews who knew you know, that they continually had to sacrifice sins, but yet here is the man who is going to take away sins, to remove man, remove the guilt from man, that, that constant offerings of sin. Now, it's been rightly said, mankind had a debt that we cannot pay, but Jesus paid a debt he did not owe. Jesus went to the cross, why? To shed his blood, but why did he have to shed his blood? It was so he can pay the debt for our sins. Is so we can be born again, so we can have life and that more abundant. Notice a couple of these New Testament verses. It talks about the purpose of Christ shedding his blood and paying our debt. Matthew 20, um, uh, verse 28, this is what Jesus said. He said, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So Jesus here explaining his death, his coming death to his disciples says, hey, guys, I'm going to go to the cross. And the reason why I'm going to the cross is so that I can give my life a ransom for many. The word for is what we talked about last week. It's the word anti in Greek, which means in the place of. He was a substitute. He was saying, guys, I'm going to go and I'm going to be your substitute. But I'm going to do more than be your substitute. I'm going to pay your ransom. You see, when Jesus died in our place, he shed his blood to pay the ransom for our sins. A.T. Robertson, great Greek scholar, says this. He says, the word ransom is commonly employed in the papyri as the price paid for a slave who was then set free by one who bought him. And so Jesus paid this ransom to God, in whom man sinned against. God in the Garden of Eden told man, if you eat of the fruit, you're going to surely die. What did man do? They ate of the fruit. And spiritual death came to all men. That spiritual death has been passed down to all men, so therefore the wages of our sin now is death. But what did God do? He sent his only son, Jesus, to pay the ransom for our sin. And he paid it with his blood. Now, once again, why all the talk about blood? Why do we sing about blood? Well, remember Leviticus 1711. The life is in the blood. Jesus shed his blood, or in other words, Jesus gave his life for our life. He's talking about his death in our place. He gave his life so we can have life. He paid the wages of our sin, which is death. Later, when Jesus was on the cross, we're told in John 19, verse 30, we're told that he, he, uh, when he had uh, received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. The words, it's finished, is one Greek word, which means paid in full. Scholars say that this word has been found also written on papri, on different receipts, indicating that what was bought was paid in full. And so Jesus here is indicating that what he paid on the cross for our sins was paid in full. In full. It was completed. It was done the ransom for our sins. Robert Leitner, in his book Sin, Savior, and Salvation, points out three more words, which were used by the New Testament authors to describe our salvation. These words are the English words purchase, security, and freedom. Second Peter 2:1 says, But there are also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift, swift destruction. Now, there's no proof in the Bible that Jesus only died for a limited number of people. We shouldn't even have to talk about that. It's that's just, that's just crazy talk. There's nowhere in the Bible that, that, that would say that. And we know that from this verse here. Peter is clear in this passage that Jesus died even for these false teachers. Now, obviously, these false teachers weren't believers. They were unbelievers. Now, notice the word that Peter uses for Jesus' death for all mankind. He said, Jesus bought us. He bought us. This word means to go to the marketplace and purchase. You see, mankind, because of the debt of sin, were held captive by sin and under the sway of Satan to do his will. We're told that in Ephesians, right? We're children of wrath. We're told in 1 John that we're under the sway of the wicked one. As Jesus came to the cross, he took our place. He shed his blood to free us from this marketplace of sin from this captivity, this bondage of the enemy, from the kingdom of darkness. Colossians 1.13 and 14 says, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And so Christ came and he died. He delivered us from the kingdom of darkness. He paid our price so we can be free. It gets better. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Having become a curse for us, for it is written, "Curses is everyone who hangs on a tree. As Jesus hung on the cross, he took our place, he became sin for us. This means that Jesus became our this means that Jesus bore our curse, he bore our judgment that we all deserve for breaking God's law. Christ also fulfilled the law. And so when He put our faith in Christ, we're free from the law, and also we're free from the debt and the curse of the law. And Robert Leitner says concerning this word redeemed that Paul uses, he says this word is even more intensive than the word used in 2 Peter 2.1 and means that the purchased one is removed from the market, never to be put on sale again. So it gets better. Christ not only redeemed us from the marketplace of sin, but he's given us the indwelling Holy Spirit, which gives us the assurance that we'll never be put back on the marketplace of sin. Will never be put back in the, the captivity of darkness. First Peter, one more passage. Of Maria, I know we're giving a lot of verses here, but one more passage. I'm going to read here. Praise the Lord for PowerPoint. Right, uh, verses 18 to 19. Knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by the tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So Peter, I'm told, uses another Greek word here, which is translated redeemed. This word implies that the precious shed blood of Jesus, yes, bought us off the marketplace of sin, but he also has now set us free. And so let's go back to our thinking about the generous donations that have been made throughout the years. With the understanding of what Jesus has done for us through the cross, there is no comparison to anything that anyone has ever gave. There is no amount of money, there's no amount of gift that will ever compare to what Jesus has given us. Think about it. God became a man. The creator who spoke to the universe into existence. he became a man. He came to this earth and lived 30 years as a man submitted to the Father's will. And then he paid our price on the cross for our sins. He paid our price so we can be delivered from the bondage of sin, so we can have assurance of our salvation, so we can be set free and have life and that more abundant. It's amazing, really, in thinking about it, what Christ has done for us, how much God loves us. It really should floor us. And last week, we read like five verses or so that talked about God's love. And through the cross, God shouts to man, I love you, over and over and over. Now, how do we respond to these things? What is our application in light of this great suffering? Well, I mean, we can go on. I mean, we can give like hundreds of verses, really in response to these things. But there's two thoughts that came to my heart, and I just want to share them with you in light of, of application. And there's two, two phrases that Christ used in the Gospels that I pray would, would minister to you as it did um, to me. The first comes from the Gospel of Luke, verses 36 to 50. Jesus said, he who has forgiven much, loves much. He has forgiven much, loves much. In this passage, most of you probably know it, Jesus was invited over to a dinner by a man named Simon the Pharisee. And Simon the Pharisee had his different Pharisee friends there. They're all hanging out right around the table. Well, Jesus is sitting there, and all of a sudden, this woman comes in, whom, whom they considered a sinner. And she began weeping, and she fell on her knees and began weeping, and then wiping Jesus' feet with her, you know, with her hair and with her tears, and then she anointed his feet with oil. Now, I don't know what it is, but man, that just really, like, I think I'd been freaked out about that, too. I mean, you know? I, I don't want to be a Pharisee, but I'm like, wow, it's. I mean, just thinking about it, it's like, oh, man, that's, like, that's serious stuff, you know? I mean, you know, she began wiping his, his feet with her hair. Now, Simon was shocked. Simon was shocked. And the reason why he was shocked was because he said, how can Jesus, he said this in his heart, how can Jesus let this woman who's a sinner touch him like this? Well, Jesus knowing his thoughts, I love that. Jesus always knew people's thoughts. Jesus knew his thoughts, and then he told a parable to him. He said, Simon, there was a creditor who had two debtors. One owed him 50 denarii, and the other one owed him 100. And Jesus said, this guy came, and he forgave them both. Now I'm going to ask you a question, Simon. Who loved him more? And Simon said, well, yeah, the one who was forgiven more. And Jesus said in Luke 7, 47, Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Now, this was a check for Simon. You see, if Simon was poor in spirit, if he mourned over his sins like this woman did, then he would have been on his knees next to this woman. But he didn't realize the, the fullness of his sin and just on what Christ would do for him. Now, how about you and I? As we think of the cross, how do we think of it? Do we think of ourselves as a good person who was helped by Jesus and an amazing philanthropist, who made a charitable donation and you know we just kind of give him applause and make a website about him? How do, how do we think, of, think about him in light of this? Or do we come to the cross and realize, like this woman, I'm struck with the reality of sin, and I'm hopeless apart from Jesus Christ. If our response is the latter, then we will love much. And I believe that our response will be just like Paul, Peter, James, and Jude, they had the understanding that they labeled themselves a bondservant of Jesus Christ. A bondservant is given to us in the book of Exodus. We're told that when one was bought by a master, they would serve this one for six years. Then after the six years, they were set free. Well, the person had a choice. He can choose out of love to dedicate his life to serve this master because of his great love for him and also for the blessings he have given him. And if he made that choice, he would take him to the doorpost. He would pierce his ear. The piercings were in the Old Testament. Pierce his ear. And they were told that he would serve this master for life. And that's what the writers of the New Testament called themselves. They said, guys, we're bondservants of Jesus Christ. He who is forgiven much loves much. You see, these guys understood the weight of their sin. Paul said, I'm the chief of sinners. I understand my sin, but I really understand also what Jesus has done for me. The fact that he bought me off the marketplace of sin, that he set me free. I have liberty in Christ, but you know what? I'm going to choose to submit my life back to Christ and serve him. I'm going to be identified with him. So when people see me, they say, yeah, he belongs to Jesus. Jesus. I'm gonna be led by him, I'm gonna follow him, I'm gonna serve him, I'm gonna to live to please him because of all that he has done for me and all that he has blessed me with. Paul says in Romans 12, 1 through 2, it's our reasonable service to present our life to Christ. He who has forgiven much loves much. And there's one more. He who has forgiven much must also forgive much. And Jesus told another parable in Matthew 18, verse 21. Peter asked him, He said, Lord, how often shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Seven times? He thought he was doing good there. And Jesus says, no, Peter, 70 times 7. And then Jesus told him another story. He says, Peter, there was a guy who you know, owed this master a million dollars. And this creditor called him to himself and says, pay me my million dollars you owe me. And the man couldn't. So he fell on his face and he asked for mercy. And the man had compassion on him, and he forgave him his great debt. Well, after this man was forgiven of his great debt, he went out and found a guy who owed him 100 bucks. And he found this guy, grabbed him by the throat, and said, pay me all that you owe me. The man couldn't, and so he threw the guy in jail. Well, when the servants saw him do that, they went and told the the creditor, the man, what he did. And the man wasn't happy about it. He called this man in, he rebuked him, and he threw him in jail until he paid the last penny. And here's what Jesus' application to it. It's what, what they call a passage with teeth. Matthew 18, 35, he said, so my heavenly Father will also do to you. If each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Now yes, I believe that we are secure in Christ if you're a true believer in Jesus Christ. And so I'm not saying that you you're, you know, you're going to lose your salvation or anything, but what it, what it does mean is it's serious in terms of your relationship with the Lord. If you understand the weight of your forgiveness, well then we also should extend forgiveness to others. It's the natural response of love God with all of our heart, soul, strength and mind and love. Our brother as ourself. He who has forgiven much will love much, but he who's also forgiven much will forgive much. He'll also love others. So in closing, man had a debt that we cannot pay, but Jesus through his sacrifice paid our debt, or paid our debt that he did not owe. Our response to this great forgiveness must be to love God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and it's to love our brother as ourselves. Amen.